you for joining us. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. I think the legacy is uh, the activism that these people had. You know, many times when we uh, look at Black history, or when, when people look at Black history, they see us as objects of history. And these men really were activists in history. They, they took care of themselves, they took care of their families, they took care of their friends' families. That's Fatima Sheikh, journalist, historian, and author of Economy Hall, the hidden history of a free black brotherhood. In a story that is both personal and historical, Fatima takes us on a journey that begins with the rescue of a library of ledgers, journals, and papers by her father in the 1950s to the discovery that he had come to possess the documents that told the story of one of the most important institutions, both for jazz and mutual aid for blacks in New Orleans, Economy Hall. With records covering nearly a century, starting in 1836, Fatima, while on home to New Orleans in 1997, saw the journals sitting in a cabinet and decided to put them in chronological order on the dining room table. From that day, Fatima would begin to construct a story that few of us have heard about, and she shined a light on the multiracial character of New Orleans, its Creole identity, and a thriving black community that shaped the social, political, and economic character of that city, and influenced the United States at large. Here's our conversation with Fatima Sheikh. Fatima Sheikh, thank you so much for joining World Footprints today. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Tell us, what is Economy Hall? Economy Hall was the meeting place of a group of free men of color. They built this place in uh, 1857, and it stood until the 1960s in New Orleans. It's my understanding there were three at some point. Were there three different locations or the same hall? At three different the, times. The hall, when people talk about Economy Hall, often they talk about the second location, which was a, a grand meeting hall. It was two stories and it had a big theater. The three places that I talk about in the book are the first building that the uh, Society Brothers built, in, uh, that the Society Brothers purchased in 1836, which was across the street from the main one. And then they purchased the property next door. So they basically were on the same block in the same part of New Orleans for over 100 years. And who, who were the Society Brothers? Well, they started out as free men of color, 15 free men of color in the 1830s. But then they grew to encompass people from all over, uh, all over, well, I should say New Orleans, different parts of New Orleans. And then there were people who were in Mexico and France and uh, Italy that are also brothers of the economy. Hmm. Now, what was the role of Economy Hall and the men who were responsible for servicing New Orleans' uh, community there? I know they provided things uh, to serve uh, funerals and uh, what we would call insurance. Could you speak to that? It was a mutual aid organization. We would call it now a mutual aid organization. And I think it was one of the most influential organizations of its kind because they had people from all over. But they basically took care of each other. They joined together to educate each other and to help each other and to help suffering humanity. That was their goal. So the things they did for each other and then they did things for the community. 
Mm-hmm. Now, you have a personal story to this book that you wrote. Would you share that? Because it's it's really interesting, and I think it speaks volumes about uh, why this book is so important on so many levels. Well, my personal story is that my father found these journals on the back of a dump truck, and they had been thrown out. The men of the economy had sort of outlived their usefulness. By the mid-50s, that we had black insurance companies and we had uh, funeral homes. So this sort of mutual aid society didn't really have the same purpose that it had before. Mm-hmm. So, so people were joining younger organizations. So they decided to close up and uh, get rid of the books. So they had tossed the books out. And my dad uh, rescued these books, put them in our closet and, and said, well, one of these days I'll get to it. So, wow, but you got to it instead, it seems like. <laughs> got to it, yeah. And when I opened them, I found these men who had been so influential in New Orleans and had really been written out of history. You know, it was it was really surprising to me how much I found about them after I knew their names, because the the journals themselves. Now, this was 3000 pages of French handwriting. Okay, Mm. so their journals told a lot about where they were at any particular time. But then I used secondary sources to, to just look through other books to see, was this name mentioned or was that name mentioned? And I found that they had been very active in New Orleans in many, uh, in many things. Who kept these journals? Who wrote in these journals? The society themselves kept the journals. These were the minutes of their meetings. And their meetings went any time from once a week to once a month. Near the end, it got to be once a month. But the, the society secretary kept the journals. And the society secretary that I followed is a man named Luja Bogil. They would probably say it differently in French, but I know the Bogil family in New Orleans, and they say Bogil, right? So, yeah, so Luja was one of the most prolific secretaries. He wrote in this beautiful script, and he just uh, put in all sorts of asides, you know, like he would, he would put exclamation points if somebody was really angry at a meeting or he'd put underlines, you know? So it made me feel his passion for the organization and for what was going on. Mm -hmm. These journals that you speak of uh, that uh, would be akin to board of minute meetings, were were they also business records too? And what were you able to glean from them in terms of the the business side? On the business side, I found out sort of uh, how much money they were giving to people. One of their first balls, they gave a ball for the, for the nuns, the Sisters of Charity, and they collected something like $369. This was in 1841, so that was quite a bit to collect in one night, and they gave that money to the nuns. So I would see these sorts of records, you know, how much they were giving to people, how much a funeral cost, uh, how much uh, insurance they had purchased on the, on the building, you know, that sort of thing. What are some of the legacies that you reference in your book, the legacies of these uh, journals? Well, I think the legacy is the activism that these people had. You know, many times when we look at Black history or when, when people look at Black history, they see us as objects of history. And these men really were activists in history. They, they took care of themselves. They took care of their families. They took care of their friends' families. They built institutions, you know, so you see how they were active, not only in their community, but they were active in the suffrage movement. Uh, Lucha Bogil spoke at the first colored convention in Louisiana, and he spoke in French. So who knew that the, the, the uh, convention went on in English and French, right? 
So you, you see these sorts of things that they're doing uh, that are they're very active. They're not objects at all. They're actors in American history. Mm-hmm. One of the things about New Orleans, because it's a, a strongly Catholic place, is that there's so much written uh, history available to kind of go back to the past. And this seems to continue with that legacy. So were these records unique for Creole and African-American people, or is, was this just kind of a standard operating procedure for a lot of organizations? Well, you know, I'm not quite sure. If it was standard operating procedure, I haven't found anything else. Hmm. So we haven't found, there, were, there was, for example, an organization called the Jeunes Amis, right? The Young, young Friends. And there were lots of these sorts of organizations. The economy was one of the first, however. Uh, that was Black men doing it for themselves. There were a few Catholic organizations, and uh, there was one, this was a group of poets who were also had an organization around the time of the uh, economy. No one's ever found their notes. Mm. So if they did take notes, we don't have them. And I tend to think that the economy was uh, special in a way because these men were, they had a lot of money and they had a lot of education. Mm. So even though you got uh, organizations later on after the Civil War, because there was a real push for self-help, right, after the Civil War, um, you didn't see people who had this level of education and this level of uh, flexibility. I mean, they, they really traveled. They traveled to Paris all the time, you know, individual members, uh, and they traveled to Mexico. You know, so, so to have those sorts of notes, I don't think everybody was writing about that. It almost sounds like uh, Economy Hall was a precursor to uh, Greenwood in, you know, Tulsa, the, the Black Wall Street. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, there, there were, I'll tell you one, one statistic that I found out. I've always seen New Orleans history separated into whites, free people of color, and enslaved, right? And then when I, when I put them together, when I said, okay, what was the real population numbers? At the very beginning, there were whites and two thirds were enslaved people and free people of color. So, so really the whites were outnumbered. Another thing that I found out was that among the blacks in New Orleans, 45%, just about 45% of the population was free, which is, a, which is a statistic you don't find in other places in the United States. They had been free for about four, uh, four decades before the Civil War about half of the population. So that compares to about 14% of the rest of the United States before the Civil War. So so to back to your point about Greenwood, yes, they were an organization that was like Black Wall Street because they were self-sufficient, they had businesses, they took care of their community, but there was a lot of them. It wasn't just a little, you know, small group. It was, there were a lot of people doing this. Wow. <laughs> This is the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Discover the world when you visit our website, worldfootprints.com, and make sure you sign up for our newsletter to receive exclusive content. Here's more of our conversation with Fatima Sheikh journalist, historian, and author of Economy Hall, The Hidden History of a Free Black Brotherhood. You talked about the uh, different segments of population, and I know within even the Creole uh, group, there are white Creoles and 
black Creoles, but talk a little bit about that and how they define themselves. Well, I, I think if you ask uh, every Creole, you'll get a different answer, okay? Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> that's, that's number one, let's start there. Um, traditionally, um, uh, in my tradition, it's been called people who were born, uh, who were born during the colonial period from someone who came outside of Louisiana, who came from another uh, nation or another uh, continent, and, and their children were born in Louisiana and their descendants, right? So people born before the United States started in Louisiana. Um, the idea of people being black and white Creoles came on a little long, a little later, right? Because at the, at the very beginning it was, are you enslaved or are you free, right? So the free people include the free people of color and the whites. Now, ask any ask anybody in New Orleans, talk on the corner about Creoles, right? And they'll tell you that when the Americans came, things changed. Because when, when the United States bought Louisiana and put in American governors, uh, the fact that you were free and colored had to go on every document. Before, if you were a free person, you just signed your name. When the Americans came in, it was free colored. Right? Uh -huh. It made a difference. So every document now has your race as well as your status. So, so and that became um, virulent after the Civil War because white supremacy after the Civil War, it, there was that portion, that was a time of reconstruction, right? We had that good 10 years, 12 years of reconstruction. But after reconstruction, uh, white supremacy became virulent. So people who, they made a real distinction between whether you are a white Creole or, or a black Creole. It became very important, became very important. Mm. Now, your book tells uh, the story of the Seventh Ward in New Orleans where Economy Hall was situated. What can you tell us about life then and, and share some insights as to what was it like for you growing up there? Okay. Well, the uh, Economy Hall was in the Sixth Ward, which is an okay. adjacent. Okay, it's adjacent to the Seventh Ward. But what happened was the people uh, from the Sixth Ward moved into the Seventh Ward. They moved gotcha. a little. They, they were starting off around the French Quarter, and they moved a little bit further and further toward the lake. Right. So, uh, in that time, in the Sixth Ward around Economy Hall, there were a lot of businesses. There were a lot of businesses that were owned by by black people, construction companies, shoemakers. You know all sorts of people. By the time I was growing up, it was their second or third generation. So you had people who had maybe education for two or three generations. And they had moved there, they came with businesses. We had a, an area right on the edge, sort of between uh, the seventh ward and the sixth ward called Claiborne Avenue. And on Claiborne Avenue were black doctors, black businessmen, stores, shoe stores, anything that you could want, you could go to Claiborne Avenue and, and find it. What happened was the Interstate Highway came in mm. in the 60s and just ripped up that that whole area, that whole successful area, which had really been going on for two or three generations. When you were going through these journals, did you, by chance, uncover any of your own family history? Well, no. <laughs> in a word, no. I, I found my family history subsequent to that. You know, I started doing genealogy and stuff. But um, I found all my neighbors. 
Now, the people who lived across the street from me had the same people in Economy Hall. The people that lived around the corner had the same name as the people in Economy Hall, you know. So I went to grammar school with these people, you know, who, who would talk about their family's own businesses and their families had this. And we were living in segregation at the time, right? People would say, oh, no, they didn't. <laughs> we don't believe that. You're just trying to make yourself into something you're not, right? So that, that was the attitude. <laughs> Now, your book has over 500 pages, uh, pictures as well. What are you hoping that the readers will experience as they go through this really deep dive and in-depth view of, of this slice of New Orleans life? Well, I want them to see people. I, I tried to make it personal. I want them to see people like Luja Bogu as real people. Right. First of all, and I want them to realize that real people were active in American history and that every time. Well, for black people, every time we would certain, get to a certain part of success, there would be some obstacle put in our way. What's really special about the economy society is that they were able to sort of adapt and persevere throughout uh, throughout 400 years in the same place in that same neighborhood. Now, it's often said that history is a fight about the future. What do you think the reader can glean from the experience of, of the Creole community and Black people, enslaved people, from looking at this book to help us as you know, we're dealing with some really turbulent times today? Yeah, really. Um, I think what, what people can learn is that, for one, we need to stick together that you saw from the economy men, uh, when uh, enslaved people became free, they, they were helping them get suffrage, they were teaching, you know, so, so one, one opportunity that we have is to help each other. Another one is that we have to stay active. It's not that we can get to a certain place and then just decide, okay, well, we're not interested in black history, we're not interested in our neighbors anymore. We have to be active in our communities. So I think that's something that we can take into it. and. Um, and we don't have to depend on anybody else, really. We, we have the resources. We have the resources to work with each other and to help each other. Mm -hmm. As you were going through the journals, um, Fatima, is there a story that really surprised you? Maybe you knew a little bit about it or a new story that really resonated with you. What did you take away when you went through those journals? As a writer, I took away their literacy. It was just really amazing to me that they had a library in 1836. At a time when enslaved people could not read or write, were not allowed to, to learn to read or write, and at a time when, when people, free people of color were told not to think of themselves as equals, you know, which is kind of amazing. Don't even in your mind think about, you know, that you have equality. These guys, you know that they just ignored these laws. They just ignored it. They put the library in. They had these, uh, I found uh, these beautiful atlases, you know, there was a gorgeous atlas there. They had uh, books about Pétion and Haiti. They had books about the government of France. So the fact that these people had a library, they had set it up to educate themselves and, and they continued. So it took, for me, the, the idea that they were so literate and they wrote so much, that really resonated with me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Before we go, I want to ask you about New Orleans because uh, anyone who follows us knows that NOLA is our second home. As somebody who grew up there, what do you love about New Orleans and where do you go when you go back home? Because you're not living there right now. 
I'm not living there. And the only reason I'm not there right now is because of the pandemic. You know, I'd be, I'd be spending, you know, four months in New Orleans easily. What I love about it the most is the, is the community. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I don't think I have any special place, you know, that, that uh, means so much. I love the lake. I love the lakefront. I like to wander around in the French Quarter and get uh, beignets, you know. But what I like is the community. The fact that I can come out of my house and people want to talk, you know. They want to talk about how are you, you know. I remember your mama. I had, I was sitting on my porch one day and a guy came by and he was a little, he, you know, he looked a little sketchy, right? And uh, he kept saying, hey, hey, hey. I said, okay, so I said, let me talk to this. So I started talking to him. He said, yeah, you know, your mama taught me in first grade. <laughs> and it was and it was wonderful. He just he just said things like, I'm, my, your mother was so nice to me and look at how well you're doing. You know, I mean, it's that kind of um, reinforcement that you get in New Orleans, that people appreciate you and you appreciate them. So, you know, this can happen on your block. This can happen at the grocery store. This happens all the time. You know, that you really have a love for the people that you, you grew up with, and even strangers. There were so many things that really struck me during our conversation with Fatima, but I think what really resonated with me was the fact that there were free black men in the early 1800s. And that's something we didn't know about, we don't hear about. And what it showed was the power of community back then. And these were worldly men. Uh, They were well-educated. They had money, uh, and they were influential. And being literate, as Fatima uh, mentioned during the interview, gave them, uh, you know, an opening and a point of view that very few people of color, black people, had at that time in history. And so that was really revelatory about learning of Economy Hall. And to think that her father saved those journals. They were in a dumpster ready to be tossed. Those are stories we would have lost but for Fatima's dad. And and I, for one, am very, very grateful. I wanted to to tell our our listeners, dear, you actually did a little bit of background on Economy Hall itself, the building. What did you find? What I discovered is that Economy Hall does not exist today. It is actually a part of a community center school in New Orleans that has incorporated where Economy Hall once stood into a play area, a playground for the school and the community residents. So it's being used to serve the community, but in a different way. Oh, it's a pity that the building was lost. In closing, we'd like to leave you with these words from Ellis Marcellus, the late jazz pianist, musical educator, and native son of New Orleans, who gave us a musical dynasty, primarily through his sons. And he's someone whom we had the pleasure of interviewing many years ago. What a blessing he was. In New Orleans, culture doesn't come down from on high. It bubbles up from the streets. Oh my, is he ever so right about that? I guess that's how New Orleans gets up in you. <laughs> as, James Car- up. as James Carville told us. Yeah. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we are so honored that you spent this time with us. Thank you for allowing us to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. 
This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast. Podcast.